0: You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Um, Today, we're going to make our way back into the Gospel of Matthew. Longest series ever. Do you know when we started this? When we launched Dinner Church, <laughs> which was like a year ago. Yep. So yeah, I know a lot of people are like, I got six weeks for a new series. We're going to blast through this. I only aim for like 50 or 60. So it works out for everybody. Uh, <laughs> but we try to deeply jump into the Gospels to understand who Jesus is and how he lived. Because how he lives affects how we live and teaches us how we should carry out our lives. Sometimes there's questions people ask today like, should I do this? Should I do that? And when we look at Jesus, a lot of times if we dig deep enough, we actually find answers. Tonight we're going to find ourselves in Matthew 26, 47 through 56. Tonight's scriptures will be up on the screen if that is helpful to you. But we're going to be talking about the nonviolence of Jesus. We're going to skip ahead a few chapters. And I thought that this was a timely time to get into the topic of violence and nonviolence because our community has really been suffering on that front lately. Uh, I know it was earlier this week, um, Jody went upstairs to go to bed while I was playing video games with Joel still <laughs> late into the night. And she texted me from up there. She's like, I think I just heard gunshots, you know, and that's not like incredibly unusual around here. Uh, but it's, it's enough where you're like, is that, is that uh, fireworks or gunshots? <laughs> and I've called before, I've called 911 here before. I was like, hey, I, I think I just heard some gunshots. And they're like, are you sure it wasn't fireworks? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I guess you make that call. I'm just <laughs> letting you know if you find a body, I called. You know, <laughs> It was like the middle of the day. I don't know why it'd be fireworks. Uh, but nonetheless, I've lived here long enough to know the middle of the day does not stop fireworks from happening in Jackson. <laughs> Uh, all that being said, you know, I was trying to decide that night, do we do that, do we call, when a Facebook group uh, for this neighborhood lit up, it was like, there's just 10 gunshots right outside of my house, I think uh, one of the city council people went and checked it out, police are there holding a baby, maybe, if I remember right, and, like, these are just kind of, like, tragic stories, like, what do we do, how do we get involved, what do we like we, we want peace, we want love, but the world doesn't always happen to think that way. So how do we get involved and help out? And this is just one story from this week, right? Last week we had more gunshots. Uh, we've heard more horror stories from right around this area of things going horribly wrong. I remember going to a city council meeting once, a young girl takes the mic, just like, I just don't want more bullets coming through my windows in at, at the middle of the night. Uh, I know Jared was out running one day when he thought he heard a gunshot and then heard a right above his head. You know, like uh, there's violence around us. And as Christians, we believe in love and peace and nonviolence. But how do we get involved? How do we love? One thing that we can do, I just found out actually in our own parking lot, (laughs) October 4th, 6 to 730. There's a a Neighbors for Peace walk just kind of going through this area. So if you want to join that October 4th, Community Action right next door is putting it on. So it's starting in our parking lot and taking off. If you'd like to be a part of that, you can do that. But uh, whenever October 4th is. So yeah, I think it's this week. Uh, (laughs) Friday, sure. Yeah, I don't know. We shared it on the Facebook page. Go check there for more details. Uh, But that's one way to get involved. But today I want to help your heart get involved. Because, you know, we've been going through the gospel lately and some of the things that Jesus says are hard to stomach uh, because it's about kind of like end time stuff and the difficulty of like almost this like great war ahead of us. And it feels kind of violent. But then we look at today's passage and we see a super, super non-violent Jesus. So I want to read to you this story and help us start to get our minds in how Jesus would have us live. It's Peter's story. And it's Jesus' story. I don't know if you know much about Peter, so let me catch you up to speed on him before I read it. Peter was like Jesus' right-hand disciple. Okay, All the disciples were good guys. Well, there was one who wasn't so good. Most of the disciples were good guys. Uh, And Peter was like the one who's always like jumping in first. You know, like, Jesus, are you walking on the water? Yeah, man. I'm going to do it too! "Ah," You know, just like jump off the boat, like right in. It's that kind, of, that kind of thing that Peter does, like defying logic. Sure, I can do it too. Well, let me come with you. He's the one who's like closer to Jesus. Sometimes Jesus only takes a few disciples with him. Peter is usually one of them. Uh, and Jesus puts a lot of stock in Peter. At one point, he walks up on what appears to be a mountain and starts to tell Peter, Peter, at the time his name was Simon. He's like, Simon, I'm giving you a new nickname. It's Peter. That's your name from now on. And Peter in Greek sounds like rock, okay? So it's, and then Jesus goes on to speak a prophetic declaration into this new name. You are Peter, you are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now I've talked to you about this in a different message, but scholars do speculate there's a possibility that the mountain they're on at that point is actually like in Greek lore and Hebrew lore, like where the gates of hell were as far as like a physical location. (laughs) So there's also this impossible double entendre of Jesus saying, Peter, you are a rock, and on you I will build this church. Also, on this rock, where the gates of hell are, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? So this is a big deal, you know? Like, this is like, Peter, I'm gearing you up to plant the kingdom. Peter's probably thinking, like, uh, even in war terms, like, man, I'm going up against hell now, let's go, you know? So Peter's got like this prophetic declaration on him, very strongly spoken over him. He's always Jesus' right-hand guy. He's always there to tell Jesus he's going to protect him. Like when Jesus is like, look, guys, I'm going to die. Peter's like, no, you're not. I'm not going to let that happen. And she's like, get behind me, Satan. Right? It's a weird passage, but Jesus is saying, your thinking is not of heaven thinking. I need to die. Don't think like Satan who would tempt me to live instead. So Peter, though, he's like, I got your back. I'm going to take care of you. You're my guy. So imagine what's going through Peter's mind when one day Jesus tells him while they're at supper. He tells him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before tomorrow morning. And Peter, the right hand guy, is like, what are you talking about? Deny? I won't deny you. No, I won't. I I refuse to deny you. That's not going to happen. And she's like, but that's what's going to happen. It's what you're going to do. You can imagine Peter's mind just like coursing. Like, no, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the rock. I'm, I'm Peter the Rock Johnson back in the day. You know, like, I got your back. I'm going to take care of you. The, the heaven's going to be built on me. Hell won't prevail against me. But you'll deny me. No, I won't. That, just a few verses later, is where today's passage comes into play. It's a well-known passage. If you don't know it, basically Jesus is out in a garden praying When a bunch of guards show up to capture him and take him to jail, which will ultimately lead to his death on a cross. So Matthew 26, 47 to 56 says this. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came. This is the one disciple that didn't work out who betrays Jesus. Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. They don't know who Jesus is out of these 12 guys. So Judas is going to kind of kiss one guy. He's like, that's the guy right there, the one that I kiss. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come to do. Isn't that amazing that Jesus would use friend in that statement? You know, like at the betrayal itself. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Matthew doesn't tell us who this is. You know who this is, right? Peter, Peter the guy who is intently going to prove I won't betray you. He just told him like just a few hours before you will betray me. He's like, ha ha ha. No, I won't. You know, like pulls out the sword. So you're thinking like, let's go to war! The kingdom of heaven is here! And that's not what happened. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Contextualize it to today. Put your gun back in its place. All who use their guns will perish by their guns. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Those are like huge amounts of armies, okay? So like 12 legions worth of armies of angels. But then Jesus goes on, But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This blows my mind. Like it sounds really weird, but I guess it's not as weird as maybe we think if we were in the same situation. Peter, Jesus' right hand guy, is willing to put his life on the line for Jesus so long as he can hold a sword. Jesus, I will not betray you. Peter put the sword down. What? What? (laughs) Put the sword down. Puts it down and flees. Peter, who is willing to die for Jesus with the sword in his hand, is the same Peter who is willing not to die for Jesus without the sword. And that, I think, is a powerful word that we need to hear today in America. Because a lot of times we're like, yeah, Jesus, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go to war for you. I'll, I'll be your right-hand guy. I'll, I'll take some people out. Jesus is like, what are you talking about? It has nothing to do with what I'm doing. I'm asking you to die not with the blood of your enemies, but by putting the blood of your own life on the ground. Jesus spent all his time Not taking body parts off of people, but putting them back on. That's exactly what he does with this man. He picks the ear off the ground, sticks it back on his head and heals him. And Peter runs for the hills along with all the other disciples. This is the biblical understanding of Jesus's nonviolence. And this is not just like a story of nonviolence. This is like the story of stories of Jesus's nonviolence next to the cross. Because while he's hanging on the cross, he's like, I can still call down legions of angels. Instead, I'm just going to hang here and die for these people and ask, ask God to forgive them. That's nonviolence. Radical nonviolence. Yes. Yes. Jesus even like, he's sweating blood in the garden. Like, God, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't want to die. Do you know how intense you got to be dealing with anxiety to bleed out of your forehead? But at the same time, not my will be done, but your will. And so Jesus is willing to hang on a cross when he could call down legions of angels and die for these people who are ripping his flesh off and putting nails through his hands because he loves them that much that he would die for them even when they don't deserve it. That's the radical love of God. That's the nonviolence of God, too. Willing to be put up on a cross, willing to stop angels from attacking, willing to stop his own disciples from attacking. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times people don't quote Jesus on these passages for nonviolence. The only time I ever hear violence enter the story like, should we be violent? Should we not be violent? When it comes to Jesus, people always quote Luke twenty-two thirty-six, And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So whenever people are like, can we have guns, can we have swords, they always go to Luke 22. Well, Jesus told his disciples to go buy swords, so that's okay. I've been trying to teach us over time, you cannot read the Bible by verses. You have to read them by books. They were written as books, not as verses. I recently just wrote a story, and in the story I say one phrase in the first five pages, and I repeat that phrase a hundred pages later. Do you realize 100 pages later, I'm trying to make you think of the first time? They're connected. But if you turn my book into verses, you'd only see the one time and miss what I'm trying to actually say from the other times it was said. It's the same with this right here. Luke twenty-two thirty-six cannot just be a verse. I'm going to show you the way that I think this actually should be interpreted. Would Jesus say, "Go, buy a, uh, go let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one? Would Jesus really live up to that? I think no. And I think it's because you're reading it out of context. If you go to Luke 9, he tells his disciples this. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. All you overpackers on vacation should feel real convicted right now. That includes me. I'm always like, okay, there's no clothes left in my dresser. Let's go. We're good. How long are we going to be gone? One night? All right. Uh, And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. So Jesus is essentially, when he sends his 12 disciples out to do ministry without him, he's like, you got to trust in God for ministry. Okay? Don't take a bunch of clothes. Don't take a a staff, a a cloak, a, a money bag, all these things. I just want you to trust in God. Go do ministry. He will provide. Move forward one chapter to Luke 10. In Luke 10, now Jesus has 72 disciples, which back then there was like 72 nations. So that was representative of Jesus is sending his disciples into the entire world, okay? Jesus sends the 72 out. He says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in that house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You're seeing the similarities, right? Jesus sends out the twelve. Trust in God. Don't take all this stuff. He will provide for you. Jesus sends out the seventy-two. Trust in God. Don't take all this stuff. He will provide for you. Now we get to the verse where Jesus tells them to pick up a sword in its completely different context. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag, nor knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Why? Why is Jesus now telling them to do the opposite? Because they're getting ready for war? No, to fulfill prophecy. Check this out. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. A lot of people are like, Jesus was hung on the cross next to transgressors. No, the transgressors are the disciples. For what is written about me has his fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord... Here are true swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Con- context changes this entirely. Okay? If you just read, like, Take your sword out, <laughs> or go sell your cloak and buy a sword, you literally turn the movie off halfway through. You learn the le- wrong lesson when you do that. Okay? Yeah. You turn Aladdin off halfway through, you just learn that lying usually works out for you. Yeah. That's not what it's trying to teach. In the end, it's like, Lying was a bad idea. Right? You turn off the village halfway through, Look, this is super old, so spoiler alert. You're way behind. Turn off the village halfway through. You learn, like, you should have left the community to see what else is out there. You turn off inside out halfway through. You learn that sadness, uh, you think it's a bad thing, but if you watch the whole movie to the end, you learn that sadness is a good thing. This is what we're doing when we just stop with Jesus saying, take your swords. Because that's turning it off before the next verse where Jesus is like, why are you using a sword? (laughs) I told you that this was a transgression thing. You guys have done everything i said. Everywhere we go, you've gone. God has provided. You lack nothing. You yourself said that you lack nothing. Great. Now I need you guys to sin. <laughs> I need you to transgress what I've been telling you to do because a prophecy actually needs to be fulfilled that I'm, I'm listed among transgressors. So you need to transgress me right now. So rather than do the things that you know you should be doing, go do all the opposite things. And they go and do that. And they don't like load up. They're not walking around with like 20, I don't know, guns. They're not walking around. They're not walking around with katanas and all these things, right? They're like, we got two swords that we got. And Jesus is like, that's enough. Why? Because you're not supposed to use them. Just by having them, you have transgressed me. (laughs) Because before I told you, you don't need these things. Trust in God. So if you want the passage about Jesus telling his disciples to go sell their weapon or go buy weapons, that is the full context. To do that is actually to transgress what God has called them to do. It is to turn the movie off halfway through and to learn the wrong lesson. But a lot of times we just we feel like we need to protect ourselves and we just need to be ready for all these things, these what ifs that might happen. Guys, a lot of the what ifs that I hear are crazy. (laughs) I took a, uh, a Christian ethics class in college. And uh, when we got to the conversation of like, should Christians have guns or no? Like everyone's justification for having guns was like, well, what if Hitler broke into my house, is going to rape my wife and kill my kids? I'm like, he's not going to do that. He's dead. You know, like these crazy what ifs that we've learned from the news, these ridiculous stories that would probably never, ever happen to us. We can't live our lives out of fear of these things. We can't prepare ourselves for those moments, because when those moments come, you're going to embody the thinking you already have. There was a man in Jackson a few years ago who these kids broke into his house, were going to rob it, but then he woke up, they freaked out. They're just young teens, I think. They flee the house, they're scared. He just woke up in the middle of the night He's got guns. He's embodied his mindset that I got to protect what's mine. He walks outside while they're fleeing and shoots them both dead. Or at least one of them dead. I can't quite remember the details at the moment. But in the moment of, of being woken up in the middle of the night with robbers, being ready to protect what's his, he's taking them out. We do that if that's the way we think. Whereas you have these stories in like Les Mis, Les Miserables, right? Where the bishop's like embodying Jesus instead of this fear where john valjean comes and steals all his stuff and the bishop's like would you like some more take this with you too like goes the extra distance for following jesus when we live our life out of the what ifs we embody the anxiety jesus told us that we are not supposed to be a part of yes. jesus said don't even worry about tomorrow don't even get your mind stuck in 24 hours ahead why because you can't add time to your life by worrying about it. What's going to happen is going to happen. Just deal with it when it happens. Don't mess up today because of that. Yes. Jesus doesn't want us caught up in anxiety. It ruins our lives. And when we get caught up in that, we just start thinking and doing crazy things. Like, uh, what is it? Encephalitis, triple E, whatever it is. This mosquito thing going around right now. <laughs> Three days. What is it? Three days. Three days? You got three days to live. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like a death sentence. It's not good, right? But so many people get so caught up in like, well, now I can never go outside again. Like you can become at the most ridiculous front of this. You can become agoraphobic, right? Like I'm afraid to go outside. I, I refuse to go outside because mosquitoes live out there. But then you look at the facts and it's like 1% of Americans get encephalitis a year. 5% of that 1% get sick. And then 30% of that 5% of that 1% end up dying. Like that is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of, of any need to be concerned about like going to the point of being agoraphobic. No, you know, like take precautions, wear long sleeves, put on mosquito repellent. Don't go outside when it's super late. In the same way, like you want to protect your family, lock your doors, lock your house uh, you know, don't just like leave it open for anybody to get in. I'm not saying like be a masochist for suffering and people to bring violence on you. But like, we got to be smart. We got to be anxiety free, not feeding the narrative that Satan wants us to just be afraid that everything is going to come and destroy our lives. Because that's what he does. He's a thief. He comes to seek to steal, kill, and destroy. And just because you live a life of nonviolence does not mean you'll always end up getting killed, okay? Like, there's actually a lot of times where nonviolence changes the scenario. You remember in the Old Testament, the story of Saul and David? This is a weird story. We don't talk about it in church very much. Saul is trying to kill David. He's took this whole army to go kill David. But then Saul has to use the bathroom real bad. Like, I don't know if he's got diarrhea or something, but like, it's like, Stop the whole army. There's a cave right there. I really got to go. Okay. What he doesn't know is David is inside of that cave. (laughs) So he goes inside. He's doing his thing inside of this cave. David's in there. David sneaks up to him while he's on the toilet and cuts off part of his robe. And then when Saul leaves his bathroom cave, David walks out of the cave with part of his robe. He's like, hey, Saul, look, I could have killed you while you were doing that. And I didn't. David took the nonviolent reaction. Saul's response, wow, I have been so wrong. I am sorry for what I've done. Now Saul's pretty thick-skinned. He then tried to kill him again. (laughs) Uh, But then David did a similar thing. Hey, Saul, look, I could have killed you again, but I didn't. He's like, oh, David, I'm so wrong. (laughs) But Saul's pretty thick-skinned, and (laughs) he tried again, and... It goes on from there. But you see, like, those nonviolent moments didn't actually end up with, like, David had to die. It reversed the scenario. For a moment, it softened Saul's heart. It reminded him, perhaps, what God's love and grace and forgiveness is like. I think of uh, our bishop here at the Free Methodist Church, Matthew Thomas. He had somebody come in one day to his church. This guy's wife had just gotten saved and her whole life was changing because she was falling in love with Jesus. He walks in. He's tired of his wife chasing after Jesus. He walks in and puts a gun to our bishop. <laughs> and for a lot of us, you know, I'd be thinking, all right, what's that kung fu I don't know? I played video games, right? Like, I don't figure out how to take the gun, pop it out of his hand, turn it on him, something like that. His nonviolent reaction, instead, he just looked the man in the eye and said, really? <laughs> And the guy responded, no, I need Jesus. <laughs> you know, like, he just put his gun down and got saved in that moment. There's a nonviolent response that brought him to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think of Robbie Dawkins. This one's fun. He didn't even know he was being uh, nonviolent. Okay? So Robbie Dawkins, he's a vineyard pastor. I'm doing my best to remember the story he shared at a conference. But when he was younger, like in his teens, he's up on stage playing drums for this band. He's rocking out, leading worship. And then this guy comes up behind him and puts his hand on him. And and this just is like, okay, I don't know why you just came up on the stage, but God, God, yeah, just come, God, you know, so he like amps up worship even more. And so he puts his hand harder into him. And so he starts worshiping even harder, puts his hand a little harder, and he keeps worshiping harder until finally this guy puts a gun on the floor and goes down to the front and gets saved. Because he didn't realize. Robbie Dawkins thought, like, this guy was praying for him. He was actually pushing a gun into his back harder and harder. Like, go ahead, worship Jesus. I'll kill you, you know? And at the end, he, he just kept going to the point this guy's like, man, Jesus means everything to this guy. I need to follow this Jesus guy. <laughs> Non-violently, he didn't even know he was being non-violent, but it changed the scenario. Non-violence does not always mean that we're going to die when we live non-violent lives. But I'll tell you what. I'm willing to go that distance. You know, we hear in churches about horrible atrocities that happen. Look, if it ever happens to me, okay, if someone comes in and shoots me dead for being a pastor, for being a Christian, for teaching Jesus' backwards ways, here's how you need to respond. One, you need to understand that I accept that because I'll give my all for Jesus. And two, you need to forgive that guy and hope that he comes to Jesus. That is the Jesus, nonviolent, gracious, radical response. And if something like that ever happens, that is the kind of Jesus love that 1208 needs to be characterized by. As we close out here, I just want to read... uh, I mentioned that I recently wrote some fantasy. The band can come up. I tried to reimagine this scenario between... um, Jesus and Peter in this moment. Try to reimagine it with a lot of what I was saying tonight. So in case it's just helpful to hear it in story form, I thought I'd read it to you. Uh, in this case, Jesus, the Jesus' character's name is Sarks, and uh, Peter's name is Mason, okay? How can I help you, Mason asked the soldier. We're looking for a man named Sarks, said a soldier. I am he, replied Sarks. Let my friends go, and I will come with you. As soon as Sarks had made this statement, he heard a loud yell from the trees. Mason popped out behind a servant with a sword in hand. The servant turned to see what was happening, throwing off Mason's aim in the process and causing him to slice the servant's ear off. The man fell to the ground, yelling in pain, and cupped his hand around his ear to hold in the blood. Sarks looked directly at Mason with intensity burning in his eyes. What have you done, he asked. "'I told you I wouldn't betray you,' Mason cried. "'Is that what you were doing all day while I was preparing dinner? "'You were out buying a sword? "'The kind of sword I explicitly told you you wouldn't need in ministry "'when I sent you out to do miracles with your sister?' "'asked Sarks with a raised voice. "'Sarks shook his head as Mason looked down at the poor servant. "'But I, you have disobeyed my instructions "'and taken a pot shot at a poor slave.' A slave of all people, which I just told you hours ago that you are to live like in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven, yelled Sarks. How am I supposed to storm the gates of hell and build your kingdom there without a weapon? Mason yelled back in confusion. I'll be killed the moment I walk in. As I told you before in your passion, you have misunderstood the kingdom of heaven, answered Sarks. You said I had to be all in. I'm all in right now yelled Mason in confusion. Yes, all in, because you very well may have to lay down your life for the cause at the hands of your oppressors for your oppressors. For the kingdom is often brought with blood, not theirs, but your own. This is the tactics of heaven. And should you have been paying attention like your sister, you would have noticed this by now. Sarks then dropped to his knees and picked up the slave's ear, He shushed the poor man saying, all will be well in a moment. He then pressed the ear to the man's head and prayed. Immediately the ear was reconnected and the man was healed, causing everyone to gasp in disbelief. He then took one last look at Mason. We put body parts back on people. We never take them off. We do not stoop to the level of the dragon in order to fight the dragon. When we do so, even in our victory, we have already lost and perpetuated the kingdom of hate, installing it deeper into every country we enter. We fight by laying down our lives. Now I see that you are willing to die for me if you can hold a weapon. Are you willing to die for me without one? Sarx then grabbed Mason's arm and pulled up his sleeve. You're growing scales, Mason. Mason's eyes began to swell up with tears as he was overcome with terror. Scales? He's becoming a dragon. And what could he do to the gates of hell without a sword? How would Sarch become king without an army? How did anything make sense without some kind of a weapon? Anxiety overcame him as he dropped his sword and ran into the forest as fast as he could. Now, if you know the story of Peter slash Mason, then you know that there's redemption. Though Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus then forces Peter to accept Jesus three times, undoing all this denial that he's done. And Peter goes on to be the rock that Jesus builds his church on. And this time he's willing to suffer on behalf of the kingdom. And in doing that, both Jesus and Peter and all of the early church who died in the book of Revelation and all these other places throughout history show us that taking on suffering for the sake of Jesus is completely worth it. So as we move into a time of worship, we're going to start with a song, I Surrender All, uh, as a way to just kind of call ourselves to live and think the same way. And I invite you to really put your heart into those words. Don't just sing it like it's up on a screen, but lift it up. If our prayer is available, they'll be in the back corner. We've got about 20 minutes before our food bank. Until then, we're just going to have a time of, of worship and reflection. So feel free to go give prayer. Feel free to um, worship with us. And as always, you can take on whatever posture you like as we worship. Could you please just start by standing with us?